Okay, folks, I hope everybody can hear me. Wave if you can't. Um, I think we should uh, get started. Um, I'm Kimberly Hutchings from the International Relations Department, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here to what is the first, the inaugural lecture of a Gender Institute series of public lectures on the theme of gendering the social sciences, um, a series that's intended to reflect and promote the importance of a gendered approach uh, across all the whole range of social science scholarship and across the whole range of geographical areas, economic, social, and political issues. Tonight's lecture, which is co-hosted by the Gender Institute and the International Relations Department, um, at tonight's lecture we are delighted uh, to welcome Professor Amina Mama, um, the current holder of the Barbara Lee Distinguished Chair in Women's Leadership at Mills College, Oakland in California, who will be speaking to us on the theme of militarism and underdevelopment. Professor Mama's career has included posts and visiting positions at many institutions in many different parts of the world, uh, but she's known particularly for her groundbreaking work as Chair of Gender Studies at the University of Cape Town, where she played a pioneering role in establishing gender studies on the African continent and thereby also, I think, a pioneering role in gender studies and in shifting the agenda of gender studies scholarship. Um, one of the most remarkable and important aspects of this pioneering role has been the establishment of the online journal Feminist Africa, uh, which has free online access. And uh, I know Professor Marmon would very much encourage people to check out that journal as an extremely useful source um, for, their, for their research and their work. Professor Mum has published uh, in very widely, worked very widely on a whole range of aspects of gender studies. Um, she's worked on feminist theory and methodology, on women's movements, on international development studies, and on militarism, amongst other things. The list is really intimidating when you look at it uh, on the web. Uh, but she's also always done so as an activist uh, scholar, someone who's been engaged in policy advocacy across a range of issues. And posts that she holds or has held include that of uh, chairing the board of directors of the Global Fund for Women, and uh, working on the UN Committee for Development Policy. You can see, therefore, that in all of these respects, Professor Mama is a leading exemplar of activist feminist research, and in that sense is in many ways the ideal person to kick off this series of lectures on gendering the social sciences. We're also delighted to welcome Dr. Marsha Henry, who's recently joined the Gender Institute here at the London School of Economics from the University of Bristol, and who will be acting as a discussant uh, to Professor Mama's paper. Uh, her specialisms, again, include, amongst others, uh, gender development and militarization, and she also works on feminist methodology. So I hope we may get some quite interesting debate uh, emerging uh, here. Uh, the way we're going to structure the proceedings is that Professor Mama will speak for around about sort of 30 to 45 minutes or so. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, Dr. Henry will respond uh, with a brief uh, few minutes, up to about 10 minutes. Uh, we'll then give Professor Mama a chance to respond to the response and uh, flag any issues that she finds of particular interest. And then we'll open up to uh, questions and answers uh, on the floor. Okay, I think that's covered all the bases. So without any more ado, I'd ask you to welcome our keynote speaker for this first public lecture in the Gendering Social Sciences series, Professor Amina Ma. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, truly terrifying introduction. Um, that plus the fact that it's uh, actually almost to the day 20 years since I left London and I haven't been back to speak to people for a long time so bear with me while I rediscover communication. Um, the topic that I want to talk about is actually very close to my heart. I've been away from it for a long time because I was so busy at Cape Town. But it began with work on Nigeria as a post-war military dictatorship, um, which I grew up in and lived through as a child. Um, and I'm really pleased to be back working on militarism as a key development issue, should I say a major obstacle to development progress, however we choose to define it. Um, and thank you very much for inviting me. And welcome to all of you. I think most of you are just coming back uh, to school. Thank you for being here so early in your year. OK, so the, the global context in which this discussion is going to take place is actually quite a disturbing scenario for Africa. Um, and I'm currently work, working from a base in the US. And the election of Barack Obama notwithstanding, the fact is that the USA's first African-American president has inherited a vast military empire that has been hell-bent on extending its global reach and effectiveness for a long time, particularly since 9-11, a sort of renewed escalation. So the historical nature of the processes that have been set in motion and the forces of war unleashed during the previous regimes mean that this could actually be a very difficult thing for him to reverse, whatever his best intentions might be. The US military expansion, of course, has a much longer history than the last two regimes, dating back mainly to the Second World War, when the United States was able to establish 30,000 bases around the world then lapsing a bit at the end of the Second World War, only to surge again in the 60s with the wars in Vietnam and Korea. Today, it comprises over 190,000 overseas troops, 115,000 civilian employees massed in over 900 military facilities in 46 countries. And that's not counting the massive troop presence where there is actual war in Afghanistan and Iraq. In other words, this is a very, very big, what Catherine Lutz calls uh, empire of bases stretching around the world. And most of us simply aren't aware of its capacity and its extent. Britain's role in this is something I'd like you to think about and ask yourselves about. From an African point of view, of course, it dates back to the history of colonization, conquest, and then our involvement in the First and Second World Wars, and so on. But I'm not going to talk a lot about the history. Um, we'll leave that for another day. Just to say that there's a very long track record of Africa being militarized by external, and increasingly since the end of national liberation struggles and independence, by local interest groups and forces. So it is a continent that has been highly militarized for a very long time through both internal and external dynamics. Um, perhaps the most notable thing to say about the global scenario is that 2008 saw the US officially launch for the first time the idea of, an Afri of a US military high command on the African continent, erroneously named AFRICOM. 
Um, and that sort of slipped into the public debate, and it's not a resolved fact, but it's very much uh, framing the rising concern about the role of contemporary global militarism in a region that has such a bad history with armies and military rulers uh, that I think we have every reason to be concerned. The colonial history of militarism and the ensuing period of highly militarized forms of government is something that uh, most of you probably have some familiarity with. Just to illustrate it, because I'm looking at the audience and thinking, you know, some of you are quite, quite young. Let me just say that by the 1970s, more than half of Africa's independent nations were under military dictatorships. And a lot of those have given way to civilian regimes now. But nonetheless, as many of you know, conflict and various manifestations of militarism have remained a very pervasive part of a development landscape in which policies and politics presume peace. Development planning presumes stability and peace. And yet there's been a fair amount of conflict, certainly enough to trouble that assumption and say, well, how can we plan for development when there is so much instability and in war situations? Um, and, and the broad understanding of underdevelopment as being profoundly exacerbated by situations of extreme uh, violence, conflict, and poverty. Uh, African thinkers put security centrally in discussions of democratization and development. I quote Claude Ake, a Nigerian political scientist, who said years and years ago that, I quote, the real security need for Africans is not military security, but social security. Security against poverty, ignorance, anxiety, and fear, disease, and famine, against arbitrary power and exploitation, security against all those things which render democracy improbable in Africa. Overall, uh, Africa's marginal position in the world and Western domination has, I think it's not an exaggeration to say, been executed through a very particular organization of power, one that is reliant on a fairly merciless deployment of technologies of violence and coercion. And that's been a thread throughout regional history. The second observation I want to make about that history is the centrality of gender relations within it. If discourses and practices of militarism have dominated a lot of Africa's history, the way in which they've done so has on the one hand relied on gender divisions and on the other hand exacerbated them. The centrality of armies in a state, for example, as in when, it's, uh, when the army becomes the government, that is your supremely all masculine form of government. It excludes women almost entirely. So the whole prevalence of militar militarism operates in, in gendered ways. And if you take gender thinking seriously into your consideration of development, it's not just the precariousness or the narrowly defined uh, meaning of security that's an issue, but the gendered import of both of those things. And you can tell already that I'm talking about militarism, not just in terms of armies and weapons proliferation and trade, but uh, borrowing from the work of Catherine Lutz as a process that is far more holistic and pervasive. So I said a technology of violence, not just about guns and bullets and heavy weaponry, which we don't make in Africa, um, but much more. 
And the definition I find really helpful in thinking about this and its implications is militarism understood as a contradictory intense social process in which civil society also organizes itself for the production of violence. It's a process that involves an intensification of labor and resources allocated to military purposes, so it affects labor divisions and the vision of labor. It includes the shaping of other institutions in synchrony with military goals and thinking. And apart from all that, it's a discursive process. So it involves a shift in general beliefs and values in ways that actually legitimate and normalize the use of force. It's intimately connected not only to this obvious stuff about guns and armies and the resurgence of militant forms of nationalism and fundamentalism, but also to the much less visible deformation of human potentials. And here I'm talking about the deformation into hierarchies of class, race, gender, and sexuality, which are centrally a part of the military project, if you like, and to the shaping of national history so that national culture is very much about glorifying, valorizing, and legitimating military action. There's not room for heroes that are not warriors in many national discourses. Um, and of course, that's deeply gendered, even where women have joined liberation armies and so on. So if you apply this kind of thinking to African contexts, you can see that militarism does indeed reach far beyond its obvious manifestations. And in our region, it's been military dictatorships, militarized politics, war and conflict. And it, it's had some quite deep and pervasive effects on modes of production, on labor relations, and on the livelihood options that are available to people in often extremely impoverished economies. And it includes societal beliefs and values that legitimize everyday violence and begin to take it as normal. These are also, I mean, apart from deforming capacities in ways that perpetuate certain notions of class and race and ethnicity, these are also dynamics of wealth accumulation by some and immiseration by others, which undermine human security broadly. If we don't address, and this is my main, main issue here, if we don't address the interconnectedness of militarism, gender, and poverty in the production of conflict and underdevelopment, then we're never really going to get to the bottom of peace building to actually change the conditions which have been so um, facilitative, conducive to conflict. Uh, and we're never going to be able to dismantle these, if you like, supporting edifices unless we begin to root out the, the very um, specific ways in which they become embedded in our society, in our political life, in our institutions. So one of the key questions from the policy point of view is how are these complex dynamics addressed in existing policy strategies? In the discourses you hear, um, demobilization, disarmament and reconstruction, DDR, uh, security sector reform is a dominant theme in these post-conflict situations, SSR. I think there's reason to be quite concerned that these very truncated discourses have largely displaced much more visionary um, aspirations for development that actually talk about freedom, democracy, social transformation, equality, and such like. So this discursive terrain is, is uh, 
articulated in militarized terminology that actually looks set to perpetuate within the constellation of players and possible players in development, this looks set to perpetuate the hegemony of security institutions over all the other possibilities, political institutions, civil society institutions, uh, social movements that don't embrace uh, militias and such like. And then the landscape is quite complicated these days because we're not just talking about national armies. The state long ago lost its monopoly on organized violence. So we're talking about corporate actors and security institutions of various kinds on this landscape. Uh, US foreign military forces, companies like strange names, strangely named companies like Executive Outcomes, Pacific Architects and Engineers, DynCorp, all these are very, very big stakeholders. Um, DynCorp, for example, uh, if the US government contributed $500 million to the Liberian army during the war, post-war it's contributed already $200 million to DynCorp to reform and set up a new army in Liberia. So corporate actors have become key players in this new post-war development scenario. And I think we should be worried about this because they're not accountable to anybody, not to the US government, not to the Liberian government, and so on. So the, with neoliberalism, the terrain has shifted, and you've got a, a multiplicity of actors. Okay, people um, talk a lot about new wars um, in the current period, um, which are distinct from traditional wars, conventional wars, in a number of ways. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it, except to say that they are indeed profoundly different. The, rather than sort of territorially based geopolitical objectives, they are often pursued by non-state actors, militias that differ importantly from conventional large hierarchical armies. They are very decentralized and dispersed, they work across borders, and they include things like rebel movements and roving bands that operate at enormous cost to the communities they pass through. Um, in a much more predatory relation rather than as liberators like the old liberation armies. And as a result of um, the pervasive nature of the theater of war, these things spread. So they're not bounded by geography or national interest, but much looser, um, much looser organizations. Um, and their, their, their practice of violence is different too. Um, it includes attacking and terrorizing civilian populations that are part of the problem uh, rather than those they fight for or seek to protect or fight on behalf of. Um, and of course, as a result, civilian casualty rates have risen to 90% of the total. So it's way, way different from the sort of old days when you had male armies meeting on battlefields. Now this is war that is pervasive, it's in the community, and the actors um, if you think about some of the recent wars, and I have particular ones in mind, um, so it may not apply to all wars, but Sierra Leone, Liberia, you have multiple militias, some of them community militias, set up to defend when the army failed and communities needed to protect themselves. So you've got this multiple, multiple uh, nature of the fighting forces. And perhaps, finally, one should mention the financing of war isn't any longer the purview of the state, but external and decentralized. So global deregulation, structural adjustment, the shrinkage of the public sectors created conditions which have seen a massive expansion of the oops, shadow economy, 
um, facilitating transnational flows and lots and lots of illicit trafficking in uh, the weapons of war amongst other things. So these are the new wars and they are quite different. Um, in the latter part of my paper, which I won't have time to elaborate, I compare the Biafran War um, with the Sierra Leonean and the Liberian wars. And you can indeed see some very profound differences in the way these recent, more recent conflicts have been fought. Um, that, that makes that a quite a useful way of thinking about them. But how are these things being studied? The literature on militarism and the changing nature of militarism and all that I've mentioned hasn't really addressed the gender implications of all of this. And I'm sure as I'm speaking, some of them have come to mind for you. Um, the data on how many women are involved in these new wars, much, much higher numbers than ever before. The fact that children are involved in them in massive numbers. Uh, these are things I'll return to. But by and large, uh, they haven't been thought about adequately in terms of gender. And I'll return to this a bit further on. But one of the issues is that war studies takes place in one place, as I have a colleague, Fumio Lonisakin, who argues extremely well, war studies takes place in one terrain, and development studies takes place in another. And dialogue between the two is quite difficult. And this is reflected in the policy arena. So you have different strategies, um, and something like housing um, will be argued about, is it a security issue or is it a development issue and pushed back and forth because the structures that deal with these things are separate. So intellectual and research implications reflect in policy dilemmas um, and in, uh, inadequacies. Um, what, where you do see women represented, and this is different from gender analysis, right? Where women appear is as victims of conflict, uh, particularly the understandably sensationalized horrors of the mass deployment of uh, rape as a weapon of war. And that as a key feature of new wars has indeed attracted a lot of attention. Um, that attention has yet to really translate into the provision of the services that might help those hundreds of thousands of women heal and recover and become full citizens again. But all it does is flag the centrality of sexuality and gender politics. And the fact that this happens has its own history and context. And the deeper analysis of why tools of terror like rape should become so central in these new wars isn't there yet. So there's a lot of work to do in terms of making sense of it. And it's my view that that needs to be situated in a deep understanding of gender, ethnicity, and the fermenting of social divisions that I've mentioned in relation to militarism as a process that augments divisions. Okay, some of the ideas that are useful to thinking this through, I find Iris Young's idea of a gendered logic of security extremely powerful. Um, and she talks about the dominance of a gendered logic of security in relation to the USA. But how I find it useful is in thinking about the politics of militarism before, during, and after. And as long as security apparatuses and forces are hegemonic within your thinking about development and security, then that has implications which are profoundly gendered. Um, another, uh, and that's at the, in the sphere of sort of politics and citizenship. If you try and think about the political economy, I find Spike Peterson's work very useful. She talks about the productive, reproductive, and virtual economies being interconnected, 
But in relation to war economies, her idea is to distinguish three, three modes, a coping economy, a combat economy, and a criminal economy, each of which is differently gendered. Now, in looking through the case studies that I did, the coping economy is the one that is most pervasive and most clearly feminized. And I won't have time to go into each case study, but from Biafra in the 1960s through to Liberia, through to Sierra Leone, what you see is a massive disruption of lives and livelihoods um, accompanying the preceding and then intensifying during the conflict and persisting after it so that the economic transformations that that's, uh, happen when conflict breaks out tend to persist afterwards. Um, just to describe it a bit further, with farming and trading disrupted completely, women have to find new ways of finding and providing food, health, and care to the communities that may or may not have been dislocated from their homes and their networks. And you find them engaging in a rich variety of survival activities that may be very, very different from what they used to do and which may have enduring effects on their lives. Um, I'll leave you to think through on the details of that. It's very obvious in the case of uh, the service aspects of the coping economy um, and, and so on. The combat economy is the one that's more directly run by combatants, male and female. Um, but predominantly male, and that directly supplies and funds fighters. And it's a male-dominated fraternity with minimal female participation. And the criminal economy is the, the least spelled out, really, but it's diffuse and opportunistic. It's much more transnationally linked, and again, um, uh, takes full advantage of the collapse of any kind of regulation. Um, and businesses pursued in a sort of adventuresome market, free market bliss. So that's your gun runners, your conflict entrepreneurs, your traffickers in people and goods, money launderers, all those who supply, profit from, and fund conflict activities. Okay, into the um, case studies, I looked at them from three angles, applying both of these ideas, um, and now I'm going to try and summarize what's actually fairly detailed um, analysis on each. Um, starting with the question of fighters, in the Biafran War, which was 60s and 70s, pre the internationalization of feminism, prior to a lot of things, very few women joined. When they did join, it was often as voluntary spies, and they were not appreciated by, even in Biafra, which, uh, as many of you may or may not remember, did not win the war, um, but in, even in the Biafran Republic. Uh, women were not welcomed at first. As things got worse, there was more space opened up for women fighters. But basically, the army officers did not recognize women's zeal for service and did not treat them in the same manner as regular soldiers. Um, they were not on the payroll, and if found taking part in combat, were likely to be disarmed and sent back to camp. Nonetheless, uh, there are examples where women were captured and executed summarily by the federal army, and very few earned commendations. Um, that's very different from Sierra Leone and Liberia. Um, the war economy I'm not going to talk about in Biafra. It's a similar pattern across the three, where trading, coping, um, meant wandering through the, bush, the, through the bush, foraging instead of farming, and learning to improvise food preparation in, you know, the details of this stuff are, are awesome. You need to, to read uh, Uchendu's book, or um, even if you read fiction, Chimamanda Adichie's book, to get a feel for what that war meant for women. Um, 
the bush market, the night market, that women still plied trafficked goods across the war zones, across the conflict lines. The Biafran women called it the attack trade. Um, so participation in different, different ways. Um, and those kinds of economic survival strategies and the provision of services. Now, women are often accused of being traitors and being complicit. The fact of the matter is that um, women in occupied zones certainly set about providing services. Um, those who didn't flee to live horrendous lives in the bush did indeed stay home. And the, the better survivors, if you like, because I think we shouldn't be judgmental, did set up all kinds of services, including sexual services. And they traded and relied on liaisons with the occupying soldiers, despite the stigma attached to it. And in that way, fed their families and communities. And there are a few notorious examples from the Afro of women who were alleged to make fortunes. They've disappeared after the war, um, but certainly became well known. There wasn't much peace activism in Biafra at that time. Post-war, there's a lot of political activism calling for the demilitarization of politics, which I haven't got time to elaborate, but that's much later. Coming back to the Sierra Leonean example, which is you know, 10 years later, 20 years later, um, a very different um, scenario. Uh, a very high number of women involved. I mean, it's a staggering conflict. It's appalling. It's 75,000 people killed, 250,000 girls and women raped. About 3 million people, more than half of the population, displaced. Involving several of the neighboring companies as well. So the entire country, including all the most remote rural communities, became militarized. Um, they had the collapsing army, they had the local militias, the multiplicity of forces I mentioned earlier, very much in evidence. But within the RUF, as many as 25% of the fighters were women. Estimates vary, 20 to 30%. 35% of all of them were children almost half of whom are estimated to have been girls. The figures obviously not reliably accurate in statistical terms, but that gives you a picture. What's interesting about the survival of women and girls, uh, and we, I've mentioned the casualties, so just for the moment, take a deep breath and look at how women survived. Of the girls, 44% did receive military training and weapons from their commanders or captor husbands, but they also played many other roles. And this is a listing from uh, a local uh, study that was done there, Mazzurano and Carlson. 72% served as cooks, 68% as porters, 62% as assistants for the sick and wounded, 60% wives, 44% food producers, 40% as messengers between rebel camps, a hazardous thing, 22% as spies, equally hazardous. 18% in communications, 14% were workers in diamond mines for their commanders or captor stroke husbands. What, what this tells you is that most of them were involved in multiple capacities, um, incredible fluidity of identities. Um, and these child wives often played quite key roles in the conflict itself, uh, left in command of the compounds, uh, deciding who would fight, carrying out reconnaissance and raids for food and loot, selecting and sending troops and spies, and generally supporting their commander husbands. 
small boys' units and small girls' units were usually commanded by, by women with influence. And women and girls' influence depended entirely on their liaisons. And when they fell from favor, they were sent to the front and easily disposed of. So again, the whole question of you know, what agency, what choice, um, has, has the, the scholars puzzled? Uh, how do we theorize um, agency and identity and livelihoods in the context of such fluidity and multiplicity. And from a policy point of view, this is entirely missed out in the policy discourse. Uh, girls are not showing up for demobilization for a multiplicity of reasons that are embedded in these multiple roles and the fact that none of these are forgivable. To come out and say, I want my hand out, I've got my gun, here it is, which is what you have to do. Uh, girls, 60%, they're just not showing up. They're not showing up in Liberia. They're not showing up in Sierra Leone. Many of them are staying with their commanders if they can. Um, but there isn't a proper understanding of what's happening to them or what kinds of livelihoods they can be rehabilitated into. Because up till now, the thinking is that combatants are men. And, where and women are still conceptualized as victims. Either way, there's not uh, a deep understanding that looks at these kinds of transformations in girls' lives and how that gender issue might be addressed post-war. OK, I have quite a bit more, um, which I'm going to skip over. Um, Liberia, it seems similar. Not quite as many women involved. Casualty rates and you know, the massive destruction, just as bad. Uh, you have to take a deep breath to read any of that stuff and look at it, not to mention, talk to people who are involved in it. Um, but generally, it's poorly documented. It really has not been yet studied in, in depth, which is why I've got it as a key research interest. Um, moving from, and, and what, what, to sum up that whole thing on the economies, you have very strong evidence for this coping economy and looking in detail at it the diversity of strategies and the kinds of invented and changed livelihoods that have developed and the lack of um, attention to those in the post-conflict peace building, all of that imperils the project of peace building and, and development post-conflict. And post-conflict for women who've been caught up in conflict, the question is what does it mean? The data shows rising incidence of uh, rape and domestic violence in peacetime, um, for example. Um, what does it mean? A cessation of hostilities. What does it mean in terms of the precariousness of life and the insecurity that continues to be a feature of women and girls' lives across the transition to peace? And insofar as uh, post-conflict development planning is still focusing on retraining the security operators, uh, retooling and retraining and cleaning up the military, um, which is where a huge amount of the spending is going, then all this, if you like, uh, infrastructure that facilitated the massive enlistment, coercive and non-coercive, of children and women into the war remains um, a problem. Uh, Sierra Leone, 80% of the men, young men involved were unemployed at the time when the conflict broke. Uh, this tells you why conflicts have been facilitated by poverty and uh, economic um, disaster after years of structural adjustment. And none of these countries are poor in terms of natural resources. Okay. Um, I'm going to say a little bit about the movements. Um, one of the things that characterizes these more recent um, uh, conflicts is the 
emergence of women's peace movements in each of both Sierra Leone and Liberia and several of the other conflict countries. Um, and that has been quite remarkable. In Sierra Leone, for example, there was several networks of women set up, including um, the best known, which is a cross-border network called uh, the Manu River Women's Peace Union, which um, was very influential. I mean, it, it came about um, serendipitously. The idea came up in a refugee camp, and then women of all classes, if you like, got uh, involved in it. But they did an enormous amount of behind-the-scenes lobbying, uh, meeting warlords out in the bush and prevailing upon them um, to meet other, uh, meet their um, enemies and generally brokering peace behind the scenes. When it came to the more formal process, they had to really fight to get observer status in Abuja and in some of the major meetings. And the question of how much that has translated, all that activism, and I've mentioned just one network, but there are a lot of local organizations as well. The translation of that into the peace-building process, formal, has been minimal. Um, representation of women in politics and government post-conflict doesn't reflect that. Um, it sounds like an old story, but uh, it's distressing that it's still the case. We understood it. Well, we didn't, but we didn't like it when it was the case with the liberation wars. But the fact that these current conflicts, which women have mobilized to resist and broker pieces, um, still show this uh, lack of uptake of that capacity, if you like. There's a fair amount of thinking about why women naturally seem to resist war. And I think the data on the meaning of war for women um, it, it gives you that story. Um, there's not room for glory. The best and most notorious women fighters do not become heroes. They become creatures of horror. Um, there's the gender politics of you know, valorization. Uh, women who are violent and successful fighters, like the notorious in Liberia, they had one who hit the world press called Black Diamond. You know, the, sort of, uh, the media constructor is a sort of modern day Black Lara Croft in ghetto chic attire. Um, but her story is a horror story. She was multiply raped. She moved from one liaison to another. And like many of these women, took up weapons to protect herself as much as anything else. Um, but you know, the sensationalization of female violence and female victimhood isn't really helpful. It just gives you a, a cartoon-like snippet of these very deep processes that are likely to, that need much more attention. Um, okay, uh, there's a lot of, there's some information on the um, sexual politics of the survival strategies as well as around violence in wartime that, that uh, can offer us quite a lot, I think, in terms of what needs to happen post-war. Uh, Liberia also showed a high, um, there's a listing of organizations. Um, from the early days of the war, a group called Concerned Women of Liberia was very active. Um, and finally, in the latter stage, there's a film about this one you should look out for. I don't know if it's come to London yet. It's called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. Um, it documents the story of women blockading the peace talks in Accra and forcing, uh, in a sense, playing a key role in, in the peace, um, and as well as representing, sending delegations to the then President Taylor. Um, but the extensive mobilization they did would have been missed entirely had it not been for a US filmmaker who picked up on the story and made this uh, interesting film about it. Um, so look out for that. It'll give you a feel for what kind of mobilizations went on and the different strategies that women have used, because they're very, very rich and diverse. 
One of the things that's exciting about them is that they often work across borders. Marwapnet, the Mana River Women's Union, is a cross-border network with branches in different countries, and that explained why they were able to play the role they did. Um, and uh, that's the terrain I think we need to, to address very seriously in terms of redefining security and decentering uh, this male-dominated lo male logic of security in thinking forward. Um, so that's, um, that, that's what's exciting about them. I mean, women and women's networks define security differently. It's not about borders, and it's not about cessation of hostilities. It's about provision of welfare, health, education, economic security, human security, as it's been latterly defined um, within the UN. But as a notion of security that's popular, if you like, democratized. It's the security of everyday life. Um, and it's very far away from the definitions of security that rely on well-trained armies that maybe won't wreak the same kind of havoc that our previously overtrained armies uh, have wrought. Okay, I want to stop talking so there's time for discussion. So I'm going to end up with a couple of questions. Um, one of the things that you're seeing in the literature is this argument that um, post-war offers opportunities for gender equality that weren't there before. Have you heard this argument? It's the idea that the war creates opportunities. Certainly, you saw from my discussion of the economy, women did all kinds of things they never did before. Do these constitute economic opportunities in a post-war context where Sierra Leone has a structural adjustment program? The Human Rights Commission is struggling to get money to do even the most basic things. So the kinds of livelihoods that women pursued can these actually be turned into economic opportunities? That's at the level of economy. Are there political opportunities? Liberia elected a woman president. Much is made of this. She's not had a lot of success yet, I don't want to judge, uh, in terms of bringing more women into her government. It's been very hard to find women. I have the numbers somewhere. Uh, five out of 23 ministers, that's 22%, 19% of deputy ministers. Uh, only nine women in the House of Representatives. It's difficult. They've tried to gender equalize the army, and women won't sign up. DynCorp have a quota. DynCorp that has the contract for training the new Liberian army has a quota, 20% women. They can't get them to sign up. Part of it is that women don't want to be soldiers, apparently, according to local informants. But the one of the arguments is that they're not meeting the criteria because it requires a grade 12 education. All schools have been destroyed, so women are not meeting the educational requirement. And they're certainly not meeting the physical fitness requirements. But it's a question. Uh, even if they were able to meet the quota, would applying WID, integrating women into security, suffice? in terms of bringing about sustainable peace and a more widespread, a deeper definition of security? I wonder. So these are questions I'd like you to think about and for us to pick up in discussion. Um, it does seem that this thing of in including women in security, which of course uh, the UN 1325 hard fought for valuable resolution um, that says integrate women into security. It's an important step. but. You know, the question is, is that going to be enough? Can you do it? And if you did that, would everything be okay? 
It's like saying the armies have been bad. If we clean them up and make them proper, will everything be okay? Uh, the kind of argument I've been making is that it's going to take a lot more than that. And one of the things it would take is to put a massive emphasis not on the military and the security actors, but actually on everything else. Uh, rebuilding the educational and welfare systems, the infrastructure, facilitating trade. Uh, women's involvement in huge cross-border trading networks is being met with income-generating projects for women. I mean, the, the, the difference between what they were doing and what's coming through in development policy is vast. So taking real account of the kind of evidence I've shared begins to create the possibility for much more far-reaching uh, definitions of peace-building and security. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks very much. Yes, please do. <laughs> uh, Dr. Marsha Henry will now uh, comment on the paper. Okay, thanks so much, um, Professor Mama, for that um, very interesting talk and um, for um, bringing, I, I think, a kind of um, neglected uh, military site um, to, uh, to our attention. I think you're right that there hasn't been very much focus on looking at gender in the context of Africa and, and uh, militarization. And I guess what I want to do in, respond, in responding to your talk is, is sort of a series of thoughts and questions, throw them back at you, and, well, you don't have to answer them all, of course, but <laughs> um, perhaps they could be points of discussion um, here today. I wanted to ask you about, first off, about your definition of militarism and why you chose um, really to go with militarism and not militarization. Um, because militarism seems to some extent to be somewhat limited in the sense of um, of being something imposed, something almost potentially fixed and potentially static. Of course, your examples don't um, don't illustrate that in in any way. But I was just thinking about the definitions and what they might um, what they might um, stimulate or provide. Um, I guess I would, I would link that also to um, definitions of security because you, um, you very rightly point out that um, militaristic definitions of security really aren't enough and they certainly don't address a lot of issues um, for everyday experiences. But I'm wondering if the definition of human security is also limited in the sense that it doesn't um, appropriately sort of link the, the relationship between um, the ordinary citizen, say, um, and the, the state or the militaristic state. So we still need to keep that aspect of, of the military in the definition of security. And that, I think, is quite, quite difficult. And I like how you were moving. Um, towards the end of your talk, towards this idea of perhaps a conceptualization of something that would be an everyday security, something that is linked between, between the state, between the military, and, and uh, sort of hierarchical institutions, and the experience of everyday poverty, everyday livelihood. 
The other question that I have for you is about um, anti-militaristic activities and who's engaged in these and whether there are links between, this is a much more practical sort of question about your examples of women involved in, uh, in peace movements. And I'm wondering whether these peace movements use the language of development in their campaigns, in their discourses. Do they um, you know, invoke um, development as a, as a tool for, for uh, strategies to combat militaristic um, power? And in what ways do they perhaps, um, sorry, sounds very militaristic, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> and what ways do these discourses also, um, these development discourses that they might be utilizing, in what ways do they ref reflect really rather neoliberal um, neoliberal sentiments, and in what ways might that be quite dangerous for different kinds of peace NGOs or peace movements to be actively adopting certain kinds of development strategies. I have a question for you about Africa and where, what is the role of Africa in thinking through militarism and underdevelopment. Is there something specific about Africa in all its diversity that might be useful for um, thinking through militarism in other contexts. Um, you mentioned early on in your talk about military dictatorships, and I'm thinking about the development of militaries, for example, in the southern cone of South America, um, Uruguay, Argentina, Chile, for example, were all under military dictatorships, and their militaries have now emerged in a somewhat questionable um, status. But they have presented themselves as these sort of ultimate peacekeeping militaries. And uh, I'm wondering about other militaries in Africa, such as the Nigerian military, who also has very much presented themselves as potentially ultimate regional peacekeepers. So I'm wondering what the possible comparisons are. Okay, a couple of other quick questions and then I'll let you respond and, and other people, sorry. <laughs> um, this is just a sort of quite practical question, which is about, you talked about this gap between war studies and, um, war studies and development studies. Um, and you could extend that. I think, I think there are so many divisions within war studies as well between sort of critical security studies and more conventional strategic security studies and then within development studies as well. And I was just wondering if there was any potential link between thinking about the developments um, in military masculinity, so the studies around masculinity in the military, and a real growth in thinking about masculinity and men from the global south that is emerging in development studies, whether there's any potential points of conversation there, or whether that's just another kind of binary that's developed. Okay. Um, Two last questions. One is just about whether, um, because the majority of UN peacekeeping missions are located at the moment in Africa, I was wondering if you wanted to comment on this, this very disturbing sort of new imposition of a kind of militarism, one that 
one that might be seen by some as a sort of friendlier, cuddlier militarism, uh, where peacekeepers, you know, are pictured holding babies and handing out sweets to children. I'm just wondering whether you think that um, has any role to play in the, the path of development. Okay, the last question I have is about the role of women um, in state militaries, because you talk about women involved in the peace movement, women involved as supporters of, um, of these kinds of new wars, and you end by talking about women in the Liberian military. And I'm just wondering if these are strategies, how, how do we as feminists perhaps want to proceed? Do we want to encourage women to be entering um, these new formed militaries, these perhaps more democratized militaries? Or do we want to be actually um, beefing up the kind of anti-militaristic activism that once characterized um, some of these um, case studies that you, you discussed today? Okay, thank you very much. Well, that's um, quite a heavy agenda to deal with, but uh, perhaps if you'd like to take a few minutes to respond what you'd like to respond to, and then we can maybe get the audience yeah, to uh, yeah. chase up I, some of those issues as well. Uh, thank you um, for, for you know, that uh, multiple multiplicity of responses. Um, I mean, you really were listening, so I, I really appreciate them, first and foremost. But, but no, I mean, I don't know about you lot, but I get tired of the sound of my own voice, so I'm not going to attempt to be comprehensive, because I'd really like other people to join in, and if I start answering all of them, we're just simply going to run out of time. So can I just sort of pick a couple of favorites and invite you all to help me here, you know, join in and um, share some of your views, because I, I really do like more participatory engagements. And now I'll try and be restrained because all of your questions are, are really on the mark and interesting. Um, you know, do we integrate women in the start at the end? Do we integrate women into the military, good, bad, old, or even these new lean, mean machines that um, are being bequeathed? Um, you know, feminists differ. There's your integrationists, your liberal feminists who say, yes, get in, and only that way can we change, change from within. To be honest, the data isn't that good. Um, women have been entering liberation wars for decades. You've got a slight increment in political representation across most of Sada. Translating that into broader transformation is the real work of it. So uh, minimum but not sufficient. So those are the four entry um, militarists, feminist militarists. Can they be such a thing? And then there's the, probably the majority of feminists who have named themselves as such who tend to be against militarism and working steadily to remove the salience and the hegemonic power of military institutions in politics and society um, and argue that we have to dismantle them, shut them down. We don't need armies because, you know, border protection, what have these armies done? Rapacious, rampaging military forces don't join them, shut them down. So there's two schools on it, and uh, you know you can all make your own choice about where you think it could go. And it does depend on a detailed analysis of the place, moment, context, options, which strategy will work. In some places, maybe it's the only strategy, or one, it's a necessary strategy, but I think in a large number of places it probably isn't. Um, I lean personally lean towards the dismantling uh, side pretty strongly. In fact, it could be just because I'm Nigerian. Um, uh, who knows? Um, the peacekeepers, uh, these are the good soldiers, the blue helmets, the, the, the 
people from all over the international forces who've gone in to, if you like, staunch the flow. Um, and you've all been reading the press. They're still military forces. They still participate in abuses of girls and women's, uh, women and transactional sexual liaisons. And there's, there's a growing pool of concern around the gendered politics of those peacekeeping and humanitarian forces. Um, again, that's an argument for demilitarizing. Um, AFRICOM, look at AFRICOM website when you have a moment. It's there on the web. They've got their own publicity uh, website, www.africom. It's a US government site. Um, and the face of that website shifted from an initially very overtly military assistance role to now they have the, the, the soldiers holding babies. AFRICOM isn't going to just be military. It's going to be assistance and supportive to reforming local militaries. But above all, it's going to work on poverty, aid, and infrastructure repair. So now the apostates say, oh my god, they're militarizing the whole of development. The advocates say, well, this is actually going to leverage money that would have gone to military, military aid to buttress the sorry amount of aid going to US aid. So which is it? You know, are we militarizing development, or are we putting more money into development? And it's a toss-up. And even some radical Congress, black American Congress people advocate AFRICOM because they think, well, General Kip Ward is an African-American, and he means well for Africa. So actually, it will be OK. Um, most of our governments are appalled at the idea, partly because they weren't consulted enough in the first place, and they've got their own military prowess and masculinity to, to think about, and they don't like it, except for Liberia, which is the only country which has invited it and offered to host it. And you could ask her about it, and she'll tell you it's the money. And of course, it's her own precarious situation in a country of warlords. So every case is different. Um, Will Liberia get AFRICOM? It would alienate her from all her neighbors, the brotherhood of heads of states in Africa. Very tricky, very tricky. And does the US want it there in the only country it created in Africa? Again, it may have negative, yeah, there you go. Um, Africa specific, uh, yeah, I think Africa does have a unique vantage point on global militarism at this point in time, partly because we've endured so much of it. Um, I think we can learn a great deal from Latin America and the transitions that they've undergone um, and not undergone. I mean, there's still live and active conflicts in various places, partly because of their proximity to the United States as the leading, I mean, just in terms of expenditure. I think the United States is responsible for 47% of the world's military expenditure. It's now up to, I think, 1,335 million, of which 47% is the US. Second is Britain, a mere 4%, tied with China, also a mere 4%. So that's how the militarism cake is carved up. Um, Latin America has different and similar issues, but it's right there. Uh, Africa increasingly salient, um, and yet so marginal in the US uh, discussions. Uh, it's not yet, I'm watching for it, watching for clear statements, um, not at all clear. I'd like to ask people here, what do you think Britain can do in that context that I've just sketched, um, with all your historic ties to Sierra Leone, um, to other countries that have endured conflict? Um, can you, you know, what, what's, what's Britain's role? What should it be? Um, so I'm going to throw that one to, to the rest of you and stop there. Uh, militarism, militarization, uh, you know, I think of militarizing as the process through which militarism has advanced, so needn't spend time on it um, unless you want to. Um, 
Yeah, let me stop and see what other people have to say. Okay, uh, we have time now for questions uh, from the audience, if people would like to uh, wave and uh, wait for a microphone. And if you could keep your questions reasonably brief, that would be good. We'll just get you the mic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask, uh, you um, very well articulated uh, an argument that by addressing some of this gap um, after kind of a post-conflict um, country, addressing that gap by addressing some of this, these rules that are you know, either not being held anymore, whether you're in the military or not, um, by addressing that, we can look at more sustainable peace concepts. Um, I think this is a really powerful argument only because we're seeing a lot of these continuous cycles of post-conflict places that can't really get out of that cycle. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, knowing, like, understanding that argument, is there any examples of where we've been able to um, go in and, and address some of these gaps of roles with, with men and or women. Um, I just start. <laughs> so any positive examples to be fair? We'll take them in pairs maybe. Yeah, we've got another one there. Hi, thank you. Um, thanks a lot for your, your talk and I'm really glad to see this lecture series come on at the LSE. I just wanted to ask if there's anything in terms of the privatization of security, which you sort of briefly mentioned, I wonder if there's any sort of particular considerations from a gender perspective or gender perspectives that we should be considering. And if any, anybody on the panel would like to comment on that, that'd be great. Okay, do you want to hmm. kick off and then maybe if Marsha's got anything she'd like to add on that as well. Okay, um, the, the uh, good news examples, wow, I have to think, um, can I come back to it later? I mean, I think that uh, what I, I tried to do was, was highlight, you know, what Women's Peace Networks have been doing as um, an illustration of, of good examples um, and possibilities, positive possibilities, because, um, and I don't think I'm clutching at straws just because the picture's so bleak that you want to latch onto it, because those networks are, are not unproblematic. Um, the question you asked earlier about what discourses they're taking up, um, they're using whatever they can use, basically, firstly to get, get some funding, some resources to continue the work they're doing, and they're being sucked into the existing security discourses. So they're called in, for example, um, WIPNET's called in to train um, uh, women police officers. Uh, they're called in instrumentally here and there within the frame of security sector reform. Um, but that's a, you know, the tricky thing is that what's good and what's bad news isn't always in clear. It's good that they're called in. It means they've got a reputation. The government's consulting with them. It's bad in the sense that they're not really exhibiting enough capacity to shift the discourse. So is it instrumentalization and appropriation, or is it, again, you know, have you gained ground when you're called in now to train the new army on gender or to help the police combat gender-based violence, to take a more pervasive example? It's a tricky one. 
Um, so, so it's never just good or bad. What I'm saying is these are very intricate um, engagements between rel relatively empowered actors on the discursive terrain in which overall the dominance of security thinking is a little excessive. I think that's the kind of case. So we're talking about how do you navigate, um, if you're thinking of an activist course, how do you navigate through that? You know, do you call for shut down the army? In the Congo, the fact that the government, in the DRC, the government couldn't pay the army was a key factor in the outbreak of the conflict, the insurrection of the military. Um, so, so you can't just shut it down. You know, there has to be a whole um, strategy. And the good news is implicit in some of the detail of what people are trying to do. And sometimes it comes together well, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's a good research question, pursue it. In terms of the privatization, um, privatization of security from a gender perspective, oh dear me, I just don't think DynCorp are very gender sensitive. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> but these corporate <laughs> actors, I mean, you need to, uh, we need to actually do a deep analysis of who makes up these corporate um, actors who are now responsible for training a new national army, mercenaries, retired soldiers. It's, it's quite a hodgepodge, and these are sort of global fraternities, um, and they cross-cut state, private sector um, terrains, but they're boys' networks, in short. Um, are they equipped to grow capacities for... What are they equipped to grow capacities for? Um, I, I think they were singularly ill-equipped um, to, to bring about any kind of gender equality. They're very male-dominated. They're failing dismally. In Liberia, they've been challenged on it. Why no women? Um, and are they doing anything to educate women if the education level's a problem? Are they taking up, using any of that $200 million to make it possible for women to, even at that minimal level of getting some women in, they're not succeeding yet, um, and it's a subject of criticism. Indeed, a lot of it is. Uh, they report to the uh, US uh, government, not to the Liberian government. That's an issue for Liberians, and, and so on. Privatization, for me, is, is, is frightening because it erases the possibility of democratizing and public accountability in security. I mean, the Lindy England case in point, um, the um, fact that they can't be called to account. They are outside of international law. They're outside of, between all national laws. There's no legislative instrument to contain and control the activities of private contractors. So the privatization of security is a huge obstacle for any kind of uh, democratic human rights, gender equality agenda. You just can't make them do it. Uh, so I think it's a problem. No, thanks. <laughs> it's a good question. The gender implications, I'd say, Basically bad. Um. Um, hi, yeah, thank you for a fantastic um, and interesting talk. Um, you talked a lot, obviously, about um, women and girls and how um, there isn't really a space for them in demobilization and sort of post conflict processes because um, competence is usually thought of as men. So in your obvious example about women not showing up for demobilization in Liberia. But I wonder um, if you could say a little bit more, less about the gap about women being engaged with, but about how men and boys are being engaged with. Because obviously where um, conflict is very pervasive, particular forms of masculinities 
come about, and obviously it's with particular forms of masculinity that rape as a weapon of war becomes thinkable. So I wonder if you could say a bit more about how boys and men are engaged in that process. Thank you. We have a question in the balcony. Somebody up there with a mic? I think you might have to shout. It looks like we haven't. about this specific case of um, the Swedish women in the military, but uh, I do know that there's a lot of anxiety in a lot of national militaries about various aspects of uh, women soldiers' um, lives, and you know that it tends to focus around the body. So there's a lot of anxiety, and I I'm sure there are some research papers on you know, how the British military deals with uh, menstruation and, uh, you know, providing facilities for, for women recruits and so on. So there is a lot of anxiety about women's bodies <laughs> and women's so-called biology in, in uh, the national military, and I think they are very much connected with um, conceptions about contamination and, um, and also, very importantly, connected with issues around operational effectiveness. Obviously, these women, if their bras are coming undone, it's definitely going to affect their <laughs> their performance. But I mean, that that, that kind of debate is is uh, is um, has been going on for some time. Um, but I mean, just to just to kind of link that, I mean, it's unfortunate that it sort of, to some extent, trivializes. Swedish women's participation in the military because they have been held up as one of the countries with um, perhaps the highest, uh, you know, or one of the highest numbers of women in the military and especially women in quite senior positions. So, um, you know, um, Professor Mama brought up the issue of uh, Resolution 1325 and actually one of the things that was discussed on a more practical level was to actually get um, female um, soldiers and female peacekeepers who were at a, a much higher rank. And uh, I think Sweden is one of the few countries that has um, female generals, for example. So um, that, that's uh, quite important. I mean, the issue of um, women bodyguards is also uh, um, recently in Liberia in 2007, um, India uh, deployed a 100 plus um, all women contingent some of their duty was to provide um, close protection or security service for Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. I mean, some of her, some of her security is provided by private security companies, but uh, some of the events she attended was so. And and this um, group of women were trained in riot control and um, 
um, crowd control. They were not trained to um, interact specifically with uh, traumatized populations. So, I mean, th th there's all kinds of uh, complex problems that arise when you put women into the military framework. Yeah, I mean, the women in the military, the media sensationalization is a real problem, I think. Um, the real information, there needs to be a, a lot more of it, but there's quite a lot coming out, and it does have to redress the sort of sensations. I mean, Hollywood's had a whole spate of films from G.I.J. back um, over the years, partly as mobilizational tools. I think they invest in some of those produ productions. Um, but the experience and fate of women in the military and in Iraq, uh, talking of alternative media representations, there's a new one out from PBS called Lioness, which is about the hidden uh, women on the front lines in Iraq. And of course, women are not supposed to be in combat positions, but the nature of war that I've talked about is such that they find themselves in combat positions, but without guns and without the training um, to enable them to do well and survive better in combat when they find themselves surrounded. So, so there's been, but that's been sort of unearthed by this particular uh, little film project that's very, very powerful and talks about the real experience and, and how that whole gender division is breaking down in the context of the kinds of warfare that are happening nowadays. Um, but the, uh, yeah, operational effectiveness, I mean, the, the range of militaries that we're talking about the Swedish situation is so profoundly different from the small girls' units in Sierra Leone. Um, you can't even give a single answer to, well, what's the reality of it? Clearly, those units were found to be very effective uh, in terms of operational effectiveness. Uh, what girls and boys could be prevailed upon to do with the use of abuse drugs, however it was done, is, is absolutely horrifying to the extent that people are afraid of children in communities that were ravaged by little gangs of children. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the level of social disruption and the exercise of terror in those little units of kids, uh, nine years old upwards, uh, is just horrifying. So I find it quite difficult to think about, um, you know, and then the, that takes me straight into the, the, the question about the demobilization of boys and men. Look, I don't think that's being done well at all either. Um, the demobilization is like they, they, they've turned in their gun and it's the, it's the mechanism that does exclude girls. But the, the real reason why it's not picking up girls is to do with all the social pressures for a girl to come out and say, one, she, she was a perpetrator. As, and yet at the same time, she knows very well she was also a victim. So the whole uh, multiplicity of roles and their overlap means that they don't fit the definition and they may not have a weapon to hand over because they didn't all get guns, only the most favored did. Um, so it's all very messy. But in terms of the demobilization of boys and men, I think it's, it's again, even where it has been carried through and they got their little uh, financial package and handed in their guns, the enormous tasks of reconstruction speak to that much broader thing, which is that you can't just now recruit them into the new army. You need a much, much broader um, economic strategy, um, uh, provision of education, provision of alternatives, retraining schemes, massive, massive non-military, non-security investments to make demobilization and rehabilitation a feasible option. Remember what I said that in Sierra Leone, the outbreak of the conflict was preceded 
by 80% male unemployment in the urban capital. That's the food for war. Um, and if you end up in a post-war situation where that isn't addressed, uh, hence the link to poverty and underdevelopment, if you don't address those, then uh, demobilization to do what? Um, to become who? What kind of citizen are you going to be if you're a boy who was recruited at the age of 12? It's similar for girls, different, but the, the order, the scale um, is, is, is not less. <coughs> Needs some more work on it, really. Okay, we have a, another question from the balcony. Sorry about the absence of uh, microphone. Very much. Just for those who couldn't catch that because the absence of microphone, it was about changing roles um, in terms of the kinds of roles that are given to women in post-conflict uh, aid programs and so on. And secondly, a question about the fluidity of women's sexuality um, in and then post-conflict. We have another question there, so we'll take that yes. one. And then. <coughs> Thank you. Um, referring to feminist anti-militaristic uh, writing, um, just to pick up on, on Cynthia uh, Enlow and one of her recent books, which is uh, Globalizing Militarism. And um, I was wondering, uh, considering the financial global crisis and maybe challenges to neoliberalism uh, in recent months, do you see any impact on, on the connection between Globalization is a process that enhances militarism, and on the other hand, militarism as fosters uh, globalization. So this is one issue. And just um, as a point for thought, uh, I think last week it was announced that um, a new research discovered a vaccination for AIDS. And it was interesting to hear that it was developed by the US military in Thailand. And the um, interest and the uh, investment in the, in the testing was the need to address problems with, with the personnel, which is spread around the world. So I just want to hear your opinion about this as well. Hmm. Yeah, that's a curveball, that one, isn't it? <laughs> um, the, the dominance of the military in scientific research in terms of funding is, is, is massive. And okay, so it gets, sometimes it comes up with I didn't know about this vaccine. Sounds like a useful and good thing. I hope they'll distribute it beyond the troops um, for free. Uh, <laughs> you know, the whole political economy of drugs and you know global uh, drug production, and particularly around HIV/AIDS and all the struggles that have been there over making drugs available and allowing um, generics to be produced in poorer countries. You know, it, it takes. You could run with that one a very long way. Um, but the the. The links between globalization, uh, neoliberalism, and militarism, I think I've, I've alluded to in lots of ways without perhaps synthesizing it out, they're profoundly interlinked. And I think the whole process of globalization, if you look at it historically, 
divesting the public sector, weakening the state, exacerbating poverty in, in places like many African countries, as well as locally, uh, recruitment patterns in the US being classed and ethnicized and gendered and all of that. Um, it, it, it links in lots and lots and lots of different ways. So I would say that the, uh, in particular, free market economics has played a key role um, in, in fomenting the emergence of these new wars and, the, and it's run hand in hand with militarism and that's without even going to the role of transnational corporations in conflicts um, and the location of those conflicts, Nigeria's oil belt, the DRC, Sierra, these are places with enormous mineral wealth and huge military strategic importance. DRC conflict, that mineral uh, tantalon, that whole, that whole link up between corporate actors, military actors, private military actors, and uh, different, different actors, I think is, is totally facilitated by free market capitalism. Let's just be exact here with our terms. And the accompanying um, di um, divisions of labor, the shifts, the informalization, the growth of the shadow economy, the transnational networks, the borderless uh, it's very different from the global village um, um, of happy internationalism that we might dream of in terms of uh, international um, fluidities. You know, one, one could go with that, but I think the link-ups are quite tangible and we can uh, draw them out and say, yeah, this is linked to a global economic system that has relied all the way back to colonial conquest on the use of force, the organization of power, and the reliance on a central theme, and if you look at African history, um, you can trace it through that framework quite productively. Um, it could be a bit dismal, so you do want to think about the alternatives that have appeared and reappear at different junctures within that. Um, the, the question about um, sexual fluidity um, and redomestication. This is being picked up in, in by, by some of the feminist researchers looking at that whole redomestication of women who drove trucks, wielded weapons, did uh, cross-border trade, and are now expected to settle down and do hairdressing and small micro-enterprises and get small credit uh, loans. Um, moving women back into micro, you know, my, my argument is that they're not building on some of the capacities that women developed. Uh, you could take it forward and say, well, what skill sets do they have and how can we build on those rather than reverting to hairdressing and, and, and informalized skills with limited income generating possibilities. So it, it just seems to be a lack of imagination, really. Um, it's been raised, people challenge it. It's, it's the development uh, industry's favorite things for women are these little projects, um, which is all about including women in at the micro level of the economy and not taking them seriously. And in a region like West Africa, it's outrageous. Women have run cross-border trading networks and run markets for, for centuries. So why relegate them to micro-enterprises when there's this huge cultural capital, if you like, of skills um, and that, that could perhaps be activated and utilized um, at much higher levels of economic planning than, than, we're, than we're seeing. The um, sexual fluidity, the consequences of it, explain the lack of women coming forward even if they were brave enough in demobilization. Stigma, ostracism, to admit that you were and you did that, it's, it, it's social suicide. So what, 
and why this isn't, how this needs to be addressed is in projects that offer women a whole new life, no less. They don't reintegrate. The families don't want them back. Some of these kids murdered their parents. The communities don't want them back. So all they can do is try and hide, and it's pushed underground. And I mean, I, I have colleagues who've worked in communities in northern Uganda where 10, 20 years later, women have never been able to utter what was done to them, even though they're walking around destroyed. Uh, it cannot be named. It cannot be said. So these are the so some of the social issues that mean that you have to have much more imaginative thinking in terms of how do you create alternative lives, whole lives, not just little jobs or little projects for people who no longer, they violated every social norm and canon that you can imagine. And uh, they, they can't just be reintegrated. It doesn't work. Uh, Reschool the whole of society to say that a spoiled girl uh, who became a killer at the age of 10 is uh, going to be a good wife? No, no. Even in the best examples where women um, were in the liberation struggles, the stigmatization of them after the liberation has been horrendous. Zimbabwe and the other countries do freedom fighters make good wives. They're all, many of them divorced after the settlement when uh, good wives and high status are needed. It, it doesn't work very well. So that's why I say gender has to be taken very, very seriously in the longer term. I hope that answers you. It's an excellent question. Thank you. Okay, I'm afraid uh, I know I've got some questions waiting, but we're running out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up. But I think that's actually a very um, good note to end on with the very depth and breadth of the questions that have been raised in the discussion this evening. Um, just before I uh, thank uh, both our speakers for this evening, I'd just like to um, remind people that this uh, lecture is the first in a series um, on gendering the social sciences. The next one will take place on November the 9th at 6.30 p.m. in the New Theatre, and it's Professor Robin uh, Wiegmann uh, from Duke University uh, speaking under the title of Learning How to Cite Judith Butler. So it sounds like quite a different sort of uh, enterprise from this evening. Um, also, just to let you know, there is a reception following the lecture today, which is being held at the Gender Institute, to which people are all welcome. Um, uh, the Gender Institute is based on the fifth floor of Columbia House, but just follow the crowd generally. And after that, I think all that remains for me to do is to thank very, very much um, our discussants, Dr. Henry, but particularly our main speaker, Professor Amina Mama, who has really ranged across some of the most important topics facing the world today, I think. So thank you very much for that. Thank you.